0: Welcome to Sourcing Journal Radio, our weekly check-in with apparel insiders and thought leaders, which spotlights a variety of topics currently driving change in the market. This podcast series is made possible by Cotton Incorporated, a not-for-profit company funded by U.S. cotton producers and importers whose mission is to increase the demand and profitability of cotton. Discover what cotton can do. I am Edward Hertzman, founder and president of Sourcing Journal. Today, we'll discuss what it takes to launch a new brand in the current consumer climate, how to identify white space in the market, and what new companies bring to the retail landscape that many established players can learn from. Joining us is Avani Patel of the Ember Lab, formerly Trendseeder, the platform she founded in 2012 to pair fashion expertise with business acumen. The program provides startup businesses with the educational, advisory, and networking opportunities they need in order to create sustainable brands. So, Avani, thank you for being with us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So, my first question is, what does it take to get investors excited about a new apparel brand? Is it an area in which they're willing to take the risk today?
1: So, that's a tricky question. I think it's yes and no. I think if you are just another apparel brand who's trying to play in a category where there are millions of other you know companies playing in that same space, it's very difficult
0: mm-hmm.
1: however, if you are doing something innovative, whether it's from a supply chain perspective or whether it's from a product perspective, or if you've got an amazing brand story. I think those are the types of things that excite investors in this day and age. So some great examples are Everlane. It, you know, it's one of those companies where they decided to be transparent about their supply chain. They are providing products that are high quality. They are telling a story that resonates with today's consumer. And I think those are the types of things that Really will drive excitement for investors because they know that that's what the new consumer is looking for.
0: You know, it seems that every time I go on Facebook or Instagram, I see a new uh, digitally native brand popping up. You know, claiming to be the best t-shirt, the best jean, cutting out the middleman. You know, et cetera, et cetera. You just think that there's too many people that are that think that you know, with the Shopify site and with uh, you know, uh, some cool branding messaging uh, that they're going to be able to to fill a white space. Do you think we're going to see a lot of these companies kind of quickly evaporate? Uh, Because to your point there, there isn't a unique, uh, you know, offering.
1: I do think that you will see a lot of them evaporate. However, I do think that the days of building a Ralph Lauren are also gone. So I think you're finding that customers are looking for more niche brands that really appeal to their sensibilities and appeal to what they're what they stand for or their values. So you will see a lot, you'll see a lot of brands that will survive. They're not going to be billion dollar brands, which is fine. You can have a very, very successful business. That's a 20 or $50 million business if it's profitable. However, to your point, there are a lot of people who are doing it in a way that's not authentic. They're doing it just... You know, they're just saying, Oh, we're cutting out the middleman, and that's the story. And I don't think that's enough of a story.
0: Yeah, it's a marketing ploy. But I, I agree with you. I have been saying for a long time I think it's the end of the billion dollar brand. But I think it's the aggregate of all of these small, medium, and, and to your point, some of these larger size brands. There's some of these digitally native brands that we're seeing opening up some some brick and mortar and, and in the past few years. They've they've grown to hundreds of millions of dollars. And um, I think it's the sum of all these that are going to be the new billion-dollar players uh, in the marketplace. Um, you know, working with the VC community and the investment community, um, do you think that, you know, we've we've heard terms like retail apocalypse and stuff being used. I know it's been overkill how how much the, those terms have been used, but are people a little scared of getting into this space? Is it a really high-risk uh, category, do you feel?
1: I think, you know... I think first, let's talk about the retail apocalypse. i do I don't think retail's dead. It's never going to go away. People will retail will just transform. I don't think you need large department stores that don't have a point of view, but if you provide something experiential, people are willing to come. To the point, the all birds of the world are now opening up shops, and it makes a lot of sense. and you know they're small footprints, their customers engaging with the brand. It's exciting. they They will go there. Um, as far as it being risky or investors being afraid or if they're excited to invest, I think it depends. I don't necessarily think that every investor is going to invest in consumer. I think the investors that are really excited about consumer are the ones that understand the industry and how it operates and where it's going. I think the ones that are a little bit afraid of it maybe are the ones who are investing in it, thinking it's going to be like tech. Because again, as we were saying, most of these brands aren't going to be billion dollar companies. And I think for most investment funds, they're set up to invest in billion plus. Um, so for those funds, I don't think it's the right opportunity, but I think there are plenty of people who are investors, whether it's family offices, high net worth individuals, you know, funds that are set up for consumer that understand how consumer works and how it plays out and you know, kind of the multiples and if you make it profitable, the multiples on EBITDA, that those are the consumers that are excited about the opportunities that are available. Because again, as we're talking, you know, the, I think there's a lot of room to play because the old legacy brands um, are not quite as exciting to the new consumer.
0: I agree. I agree with that. So Talking about these these new companies that are emerging, do you think these companies could scale on their own, or is it likely that their technology or some other benefit that they've created will be picked up um, by these traditional players that are looking to you know evolve? Um, you know, it's a quick way for them to transform themselves or to tap into a newer, newer generation, uh, of consumer. So do you think it's, um, can they live on their own or is this really an exit strategy and a way for the legacy brands to kind of breathe new life into themselves?
1: Depends on the company. I think if you are a one trick pony, it might be very difficult. However, I think if you can build a brand and a lifestyle and a following, you can live on your own. Um, Sometimes it's actually detrimental to some of these smaller brands to be uh, taken up by the larger players if there isn't alignment as far as brand and consumer and vision. So I think it's, you're going to see a little bit of both. I think you're going to see some of these companies emerge. So companies like Nadam, Kashmir. I think are are really interesting, and you know they're they're continuing to grow, and they're going to continue to scale, and they're evolving as a business. Um, whereas other companies might live better under umbrellas for you know larger companies. So, for example, I think Trunk Club didn't necessarily make sense as a business by itself because of the logistics that are involved, but. The buy by Nordstrom made a lot more sense because the product was already there, the c- customers were there. It was just a new way of servicing your customer base, um, which I think made sense for both companies.
0: Right, and look, even, even with that deal, we saw that Nordstroms had to write off a lot of uh, a lot of that deal. So it's it's still to be seen how successful that will that 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 deal will be in years to come.
1: Yeah, I agree. I don't know if the valuations are necessarily
0: correct. Right. That's, that's Um, where it gets tricky. I
1: think that's, that's where it gets tricky, but I do think the technology or Mm -hmm. product offering makes sense.
0: So, so you mentioned Nadam Kashmir, um, and and I want to go back to that for a second. I, I know they're part of, of your program. I know Plinitz is another company that, um, uh, is part of your program And they're built on the quality of their raw materials. Um, This seems to be a theme with startups right now. What are they tapping into from a consumer standpoint? Is quality rather than brand name the new luxury?
1: I think in certain aspects it is. I do think that today's consumer is a lot more aware of what they're buying. They're also, you know, they're a lot more educated. They're doing the research before they purchase I do think quality matters. I, but I do think brand is just as important. And it's not about brand name, but it's more about brand story. And I think the things that appeal to the consumer for someone who is really interested in NADAM, um, it's their supply chain. It's the fact that they are helping, you know, this this herder out in the middle of the Mongolian desert who otherwise was otherwise was being taken advantage of. I think that's an important part of their story. Um, so I think luxury is it is about brand, but it's more about brand story, about brand values, um, not necessarily just logos.
0: So you mentioned supply chain. So I, I like to pivot the conversation a little bit to supply chain for a second. You know, the hardest part of building a brand or any new consumer product company uh, is often the supply chain, and, and- there's a lot more attention going to sourcing and and this and product development in the supply chain today more than ever. Are there resources out there for emerging labels or factories and suppliers more willing to work with some of these smaller quantities or on-demand production? You know, obviously, when these brands are getting started, they can't produce hundreds thousands of units in a factory and. In, in, in Bangladesh or India. Um, but are the factories pivoting to the, to the demands of these new companies as you know, cause that's really what the consumers want, right?
1: Right. Um, they are, they are very much so. So what we've seen is we've actually spoken to a factory who is, you know, taking a piece of their supply chain and they are retrofitting it so that they can fit in with the needs of a startup versus the needs of a Nike or an adidas. Um, and what we're seeing is that more and more people are getting into that. I think there's also newer systems out there, so there's people who are you know doing on demand production. There's a few companies out there that are trying to get that ramped up. You're also seeing um, you're seeing other people out there companies like Anvil who are helping startups source from the factories that are willing to work with the smaller quantities and the faster supply chains. So I think the entire the entire industry is moving in the direction that we need to go to to keep up with where you know where fashion is going in the future.
0: Mm-hmm. So um, I'm going to pivot again to another category. Adaptive clothing is another niche that more companies like uh, Slick Chicks are that's just one brand are focusing on. Plus, you know, thanks uh, in large part to Rihanna, more companies seem to be finally offering products for all complexions like uh, Nude Bar. Um, is this key to success in apparel, finding an underserved population? Can you be successful today by going after a mainstream category?
1: I think you can be successful with both. I think one is, I do think there's a lot of white space that companies like Slick Chicks and Nude Bar are thinking about. And again, you know, these are companies that are serving a community that wasn't being serviced, and it's a very large community. And that is a great place to play, and that's a great way to build a business. However, I do think that you can go mainstream by changing product, by changing brand story, which is what the Nadams or the Everlanes of the world are doing, um, or or the planets of the world. Because today's consumer, like I said, is looking for something different. They're no longer just interested in a product because of brand name. They They want something that aligns with their values. And so as you're seeing that shift in the way consumers are thinking about brands, there's definitely opportunity to take market share from mainstream brands and mainstream categories.
0: So so what does it take for a new company to break through all the noise today? You know, everyone says social media, but, you know, that space has become crowded. You know, it, it's, it seems it's more crowded now than ever. Um customer acquisition is so important in, in getting any business off the ground and, and especially to scale. You know, what What do you recommend to your startups uh, as, as, as a means to just get their name out there and to start to build, uh, to build a client base?
1: Yeah, I think there's a few things. One is product. It all comes down to product. You have to have an amazing product out there because if you don't, you know, somebody will purchase once, but they're never coming back. The second is brand and story. I think you have to have a story that resonates with that particular consumer. And if it doesn't, again, there are enough brands out there that are, that are telling that story where, where the consumer will go to that brand because they believe in the values and what that brand stands for. And the third is value proposition. And when I say value proposition, I'm not saying it has to be inexpensive. I'm not saying that you know it should be something that's cheap. When I say value proposition, I think the end consumer has to feel like they're getting something that's worth more than what they're paying for. So regardless of whether they're paying five hundred dollars or fifty dollars, they have to feel as if the value of that product exceeds what. The price point on it that they're paying is. And I think when you have those three things, it's a lot easier to gain an audience and to gain um, a following of people who are going to be your evangelists and who are who are going to help you tell the stories to others who fall within that same category.
0: I know this is going to be a tricky question, and I know there's no right answer because um, we've seen people be, uh, be successful taking both strategies. But today, do you recommend, you know, some companies are really focused on top line. They'll spend anything and everything to acquire customers, and they're really focused on consumer acquisition at any cost. Um, And then you find them, you know, years later, um, having a nice top line, but all they've done is lose money year after year after year. They have to go round after round after round to keep their business going, and they haven't found a, 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 a means to profitability. Other companies are more concerned about being profitable, um, not just acquiring, com- you know, uh, consumers for consumer's sake. You're looking at the lifetime value of a customer and trying to build a more sustainable business from the start. You know, obviously, when the economy is good and a lot of VC money is getting pumped into to companies, people could be a little bit more aggressive and spend on marketing. But now, you know, um, with so many new players entering the market. Um, what is your recommendation? You know, what do you tell your your startups, you know, a little, where should they be investing their money, their energy, their time?
1: For us, it's pretty clear cut. We believe in profitability over top line growth. Um, we are very adamant with our companies that that's, you know, that's the best path to take. Again, because the top line growth, it's it's unsustainable. Um, To your point, sure, you can keep pumping in a lot of VC dollars, but let's just take a look at it from the viewpoint of an entrepreneur. Even if you build a $10 million company and you own 100% of it and you are spitting out, let's say, $2 million of EBITDA a year, you're living a really good life. That's a really great business. Now, you could have a $100 million company, but now you've taken so much venture funding or funding in general, you own about ten percent of that company and you still can't get it to profitability. you're just churning it just you know when you start to think about exits and multiples it it's still you'll probably still end up with fewer dollars in your pocket than um, than the other person and so I think you know profitability is it's it's really important. It's just something that a lot of people don't think about, unfortunately. Um, but to your point, the market shifts and the companies that are going to make it out on the other end are going to be the ones that are profitable. The other question is, you know, you as an entrepreneur, what are you trying to build? Are you trying to build something that you want, something that's lasting or do you want something that's here today, gone tomorrow? And for us, you know, we we really love working with entrepreneurs that believe in what they're doing, that want to build a company that is going to be around in 10, 20, 30, 40 years um, versus a company that is a flash in the pan.
0: No, I'm really happy you said that, Avani. That's always been my business uh, strategy. And it's, it's good to know that when you, you know, when you pay a bill, you're paying a bill based on money that you're generating. And you know that you're, you have customers that are coming to you because, uh, you have a product that, um, they really appreciate and they're coming back time after time. You're not just seeing a lot of, you know, churn. And I, I think you're a hundred percent correct. You know, the, the market turns, you know, VC dollars dry up and then you see a lot of, um, exits. You see a lot of, a lot of entrepreneurs, uh, actually leaving with not so much money in their pocket. The, the headline may seem glamorous because the numbers may seem large, but when you do a little bit of forensic accounting, you realize they're diluted down to nothing. They've, they've lost most of the control and they're just paying back, uh, you know, a lot of the money to people that have invested along the way. So I think that's a really uh, valid point that you made. And, uh, I, I hope the, the listeners today take that into consideration. Um, you know, it's all—it's funny because often, you know, um, it used to be that established fashion executives were always teaching the upstart companies, you know, what's the best practices, what to do. But it almost seems that things are shifting right now, right? Like it almost seems that these digitally native companies or some of these startup brands or these hybrid, you know, digitally native part brick and mortar are teaching the established brands what to do, Um What do you think these traditional retailers and brands can learn from the startup community?
1: Yeah, I think it's definitely a two-way street in this day and age. I think there's a lot to be learned, you know, whether it's about supply chain and being a little bit more nimble. I think it's, you know, learning how these startups are engaging with their customers and there's no curtain Anymore for the startup brands. They're trying to be as transparent with their customers and be as open. Whereas I think back in the day, it was really more about the mystique and passion. And so just being able to speak to your consumer in the same way a startup brand does, it's really important for these new traditional retailers. It's also new technologies. You know, when you're manning a very large ship, you're not necessarily paying attention to all the chatter that's going on at the ground floor because you're, you're trying to, you know, continue to move this large ship forward. But these startup brands, because they don't have quite as much capital to invest in marketing and all of that are being a lot more nimble. They're being smarter about the technologies that they're using, the marketing, you know, that they're using. So they are seeing whether it's, it's something like Instagram, they're seeing these new technologies first and utilizing them where I think it would be smart and be helpful for some of these larger players to be able to jump in on those trends earlier than they usually learn about them.
0: Mm -hmm. So I just got, you know, a last question for you. Uh, A two-part question. How many new companies are are approaching you every year to try to get into your program?
1: Oh, we talk to hundreds and hundreds of companies um, every year.
0: And, and, and how many? And how many will ultimately get selected to work with you? And obviously, the, the mentor, the mentors that you have on board.
1: We only take about five to seven because we are very hands on with our companies, and we continue to stay engaged um, as partners with our companies. And we want to be as value add as possible. So our capacity is at, a, at about five to seven companies a year. So we're very thoughtful about the types of companies that we take in, but we're also thoughtful about where can we be the most value add?
0: So even after, we'll call it a graduation from the program, you you and your organization still is involved in helping the company um, move forward.
1: Yep, there is no real graduation from our program. So NADAM a great example. NADAM joined us in 2015 Um, January of 2015. And we still continue to speak with Matt, the founder, we continue to try to be as helpful, we, you know, continue to introduce him to executives and opportunities wherever we can and try to provide as much advice and support as possible.
0: So Ivani, for all of the entrepreneurs out there with a dream, um, can you just give us one success story from your program, what did they get right that so many others uh, might have missed or continue to miss today?
1: Oh, wow. So many great companies in our portfolio have done so well. Um, but I think let's go back to Not Kashmir only because we've spoken about that business quite a bit. I think, one, they were focused on growth, but profitability. The other thing they got right was the brand story and being able to tell it in a way that was engaging to their audience and product. I mean, their product is phenomenal and the value of the product. It's those three things that we talked about. Those things, when they come together, really, you know, that's really what drives the consumer to purchase. And we've seen that work for them.
0: But do you think, you know, um, is there a discipline with them? You know, is it staying uh, with, 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 you know, that, that product category with that raw material? Um, Is it not, you know, over expansion? Is it not trying to, to your point, drive top line for top line? You know, is is there, is there a secret sauce that they have in terms of um, good business acumen that other businesses maybe are not practicing?
1: As I said earlier, I don't know if there's a secret sauce because I think it's very different for every company, but I do think, you know, focusing on growth, but focusing on profitability has been really important for them. That's provided them with great staying power, focusing on product and innovation across product, but again, keeping it edited down and not trying to expand into too many categories or too many fabrications very early on has played out well for them. Um, And I think remaining true to their brand and what they stand for has been very important.
0: So for those that that don't know the brand, is it available just online? Is there a wholesale component? Is there a brick and mortar component?
1: They have a wholesale component. They have an online component and they also um, have their own, pop-up shops. So you can find them in a lot of different places, but not too many places, which is also really important for fashion.
0: Well, this has been very informative and I, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to speak with us today. Um, if anyone wants to get in touch with you or learn more about your organization, what is what is the the, the website that they should visit?
1: The website um, that they can visit to learn about everything that we do is embercompany.co
0: embercompany.co. All right. Well, Ivani, thank you again. And uh, hopefully we uh, you'll be back soon to talk more success stories uh, for some of your uh, companies. Join us for our sixth annual Sourcing Summit here in New York on October 11th. This year's Sourcing Summit is not to be missed. We have more than 20 amazing speakers lined up to lead thought-provoking discussions on why sustainability makes both dollars and cents, how data can deliver true customer-centric results, what the supply chain of the future will really look like, and what disruptors are doing that everyone else had better get a handle on. We'll be joined on stage by McKinsey & Company, Google, Wharton, Nike, Under Armour, Known, Trendalytics, Lian Fung, and many more. Visit sourcingjournal.com to learn more and purchase your tickets today.